in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Dustin Melbarnes, Lizzie Haynes, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Brian Fry, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Dustin. I didn't have something prepared today to mess up your name, so I this, this is my mess up. I'm just going to say Dustin. I'm not going <laughs> to... How are we doing today, Dustin? It's too bad the running joke didn't hit today. I'll try to come up with something on the fly. Uh, me and our guest were talking hockey beforehand, so we can go uh, Dustin Melbar Niedermeyer. Oh, that's good. Dust, Dustin Melons. All right, that's fine, too. Um, <laughs> uh, and we also have a special guest host here today coming to you from Toronto, Ontario, and Canada and the land of the Creeps and Phantom Galaxy podcast. It is your first-time special guest, Bill Van Vagel. How are you? Doing well. My cherry has been popped. I am now on to this podcast. I really oh, yeah. appreciate coming on. Uh, I think I reached out to you guys, said I like listening to your podcast. We set something up, chose something that's outside of the genre I normally talk about, which is awesome, because then I get to spread my wings and get to talk about a movie that I don't think a lot of people have seen. I, I agree. In fact, I hadn't even heard of this guy or the film, but we'll get into that in a few minutes. Uh, just to uh, break the ice here a little bit, I'm curious, uh, Bill, what is your favorite foreign film? Foreign film? Now, what do you consider foreign? Yeah, that's uh, that is an yeah, interesting I, question for him. Like a lot of people, like, I, I don't it consider I, I don't consider British foreign. Okay. It is, but okay. it's, but it's Let's, fairly standard. Let's say non-British European slash rest of the world. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll exclude North America and Britain. I so. love my Italian horror. Okay. Italian, yeah, it's awesome. It, it, Italian horror. There's a movie by a director you will know, Dario Argento. Sure. Absolutely. And, and I might just off the top of my head go with The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Crystal Plumage. Yes. I love that movie. It was an excellent movie. Yeah. Dustin, what you got, man? What's, what's your favorite foreign film? Uh, I did think about this for a minute, but it was easy to go back to my favorite of all time, which we've covered on the show. I was happy to introduce several of you to The Legend of Drunken Master, uh, Jackie Chan. Uh, the original Drunken Master is great, uh, and it feels more like it's a foreign film, but uh, the sequel is better. And it was, I think, 1994, uh, Dimension Films put it out. Uh, there's, there's several versions of the film, so you'll have to listen to our episode on it if you want to learn the correct way to watch that movie. I, uh, I had a really tough time with this because uh, foreign films are very much a what I'm in the mood for at the time sort of thing. Uh, like, I'll go on a Kurosawa tear, you know, and for six months I'm just watching samurai films. Um I, I my knee jerk. I want to go with Pan's Labyrinth just because Ooh. I I 
that movie blew me away when I first saw it, but I did have earmarked my, my knee jerk reaction before I really thought about it. Like the first thing that popped in my head was old boy. Wow. You're going deep for that one. I like that. Yeah. So, uh, I, that, but that was the first thing that sprung in my mind. Oh, you got to talk about old boy. I just watched, uh, not that long ago, Tetsuo Iron Man. Okay. Have you seen that film? No. No, I have not. It is a combination of Cronenberg, Lynch, and Japanese craziness. Okay. And it's uh, you. You could I'd be call down it for horror. all of that. Yeah, it's, it's it's more like body horror, weird. Have a couple substances of your choice and throw it on. Okay. Well, and it's fitting, you know, the name Tetsuo and body horror uh, takes you back to Akira in 88. Right. I can't think of the name Tetsuo without thinking of uh, some gross stuff with the body. Uh, speaking of gross stuff with the body, there's something I watched not too long ago. <laughs> That's a great um, segue. I love that segue. Yeah. <laughs> Have you guys seen uh, Crimes of the Future? Not me. Crimes of uh, Cronenberg. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. 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 Last year's. Yep. Yep. And oh, the, the 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 inner beauty pageant. Okay, yeah, that's yep. pretty good. Dude, I like I like I, I like, like I like David, and I like I like his son Brandon too. Uh, Dustin, what's the last uh... the last movie I saw? Yeah, uh, I, I just wanted to say I'm I'm pro out there, pro trippy at, at all times. Give give me that. Uh, this was this was I'll, I'll give you guys kind of an example of of why I picked this one. So I caught a little bit of Red Sparrow last night. Oh, what'd you uh, think? Well, you know that trope or that meme where your wife only walks in during the most embarrassing part of what you're watching? (laughs) The one one scene where they're topless, that's when she'll walk in. All right, exactly. Or like, you know, your partner looks over at your phone while you're scrolling the exact moment that like a thirst strap comes across the the timeline. Uh That's how I felt with Red Sparrow. I walked in during uh, the topless scenes and then the torture scenes. And I was like, you know what? I've... I feel like I'm, I'm I, I like what it's on the screen, but I need to start this from the beginning. It's funny you bring that up because in order to avoid that very same thing, I told my wife when I had to watch Blue is the Warmest Color. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I, I, I need you to understand this is the movie <laughs> I am watching. You may walk in in some awkward moments. It's not pornography. <laughs> Is that one NC-17 or X? I think that one was when it was still X rated, right? I think it's, it's dealer's choice, (laughs) but, uh, but yeah, I, but it was purely to avoid that because I know without fail, she would walk in during one of those scenes. Just reading it for the articles. No, it's funny. My wife just sees it now. (laughs) She rolls her eyes and goes, all right, whatever. Used to it by now. Yeah. Yeah, Is that, is that a nipple being cut off? Yes. Okay. Whatever. Make dinner. I don't care. <laughs> don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. What was the last movie you saw, Bill? Uh, Bloody Night, Deadly Night from okay. 1972. Low budget horror that actually ended up being better. It has one actor who's in every movie in the 70s for about 10 minutes, John Carradine. Okay. And uh, Patrick O'Neill. And it was a it's a haunted house type of film. Gotcha. Uh, looks like the last movie that I watched, I, uh, this makes sense. Last movie I watched was called Suspect Zero, starring Ben Kingsley and Aaron Eckert. 
I don't know if you guys have seen that before. It's it's pretty it's it's suspense in the vein of seven. Uh, I, I mean I like Ben Kingsley. Mm-hmm. So I'll check out anything that he's in at some point. Uh, I don't know much of the cast other than him and Eckert. I, I'm going to say that it is... I, I mean, I enjoyed it. I, I don't think that it's maybe as essential to everyone's watch, but if if you're into a very dark suspense film, that's that's what it is. Oh, and there's one I just watched that I recommended to your partner here that I think you will both enjoy called Lady Snowblood from 1973. Yeah. And it's a Japanese film with subtitles that I can almost guarantee Quentin Tarantino has seen because it's very much in the vibe of if you like to kill Bill, I'm avenging the killing of someone in your family. It's it's great. So today we will be discussing Breaker Morant. Now, Dustin, have you seen this movie before? This was brand new to me. Uh, it's from 1980. It seemed older than it was, but that was based on the, the period that it was covering. But sure. no, uh, brand new to me. But I, when I saw it across the list, um, I try my best not to research into it before watching it. And uh, something that has, over the last three years or so, really uh, taken me by surprise is like, ooh, courtroom drama. This Mm. is something that I didn't realize I liked so much. So that was kind of a fun surprise. I agree. That courtroom piece of this is is a lot of fun. Uh, Bill, first time? No, this was a second time. This is one. The reason I chose it, I had watched it within the past year and a half, I think it is or so. I have a colleague at work who highly recommended it, been recommending it for years. And I got finally okay. got around to watching it. And before we kind of dive in, my personal background is I have an honors degree in history. So this was right in my jam. I also have uh, my accreditation as a paralegal. So the legal aspect was right up my jam. I quite enjoy the actors and I love a good period piece. So I had not seen this movie before either, and I, I hadn't even heard of it. Uh, and I really, you know, this was a very enjoyable film. So now we're going to learn a little bit about it. This movie was starring Edward Woodward, Jack Thompson, John Waters, Brian Brown, Charles Tingwell, Terrence Donovan, Ray Mager, Louis Fitzgerald, Ron Molnier, and Frank Wilson. Uh, as Dustin said, it came out in uh, 1980. Its budget was $4.7 million uh, in Australia. Uh, amount gross was $3.5 million domestically. Uh, not a whole lot of stats in terms of its box office, uh, I'm assuming due to its its nature. The number one movie that year was Star Wars Episode V, Empire Strikes Back. So it's uh, it's performing against some heavy hitters. IMD rate, DB rates it at 7.8 and Rotten Tomatoes give it a 100% and audience wow. gives it 91. That's the highest I've ever seen uh, on the wow, movies wow, we've wow. done. So uh, I'm, 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 one, I'm bringing, I was going to say, I'm bringing a touch of class. Is that what I'm doing? Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. We need uh, guests that know what, what movies to pick. I would say more often than not, though, we're, we're always talking about how we are against 
IMDb and we're against Rotten Tomatoes. But no, I uh, I'm, I'm firmly in line with these ratings. Uh, I'm always against the AFI. That's for sure. Right. Yes, they're ranking their yes. top hundred or their top thousand. It's like oh, don't on. don't get me going on IMDb, please. I'll, I'll just start blinking and I'll be like, what what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it did get one Academy nod for best writing, although it did not win. Uh, it has one win uh, for a Golden Globe for best foreign film, and it had 10 wins uh, at the Australian Film Institute Awards. Maybe a little Homer uh, bias there. Also got two nods at Keynes uh, for best picture and best supporting actor. All right, so we already uh, kind of laid a little bit of the groundwork on our uh, our background with this film. Uh, Dustin, what were you expecting coming in? Well, uh, I, I did think to myself, this is named after a person. Uh, so I was expecting this to be closer to biopic, closer to we're focusing on one man's exploits, and we don't get that. So that was a fun kind of diversion is about 20, 30 minutes in. I'm like, this isn't about this one guy. This is about something that happened by a group, by a, a, a platoon, uh, the, the carboneers themselves. And it, it really encapsulates the, the feel of uh, a, a grand international uh, conflict as opposed to like the story of one guy. So it's a little bit surprising. Um, you, you think about it from just the title and i would say this falls into my category of movies that like the title's kind of it's hard to say misleading but this is way more about uh, the the uh, court martial than it is about what one person did here um framing it in that way is based on i, I suppose and maybe you guys can help me out later on with this is the is based on a true story partially but uh, so that kind of makes sense. But I was expecting it to be more about like some type of heroic exploits instead of what we got. So when uh, I, I watched it uh, twice for this recording, I was really I was pleasantly surprised as to what our content really was. And when I see the title, it almost seems like just a generic title. Yeah. But my my guess is it because if it was maybe shot for the home base of south africa they that would have drawn people in because they know the legacy and the story behind it right yeah uh giving it a title like you know the end of the boer conflict or something else might be considered more artistic but i think i think you're right with if this is you know an australian or a south african sort of name that would bring people in with what they know about their country's history. That that makes a lot of sense. Bill, I'm actually curious. You said it was your second time watching. I, I'd like to hear uh, anecdotally how you felt about it the first time you watched it. First time I watched it, like it had been played up to me by the person that recommended it. And he is generally knows my taste. He's a bit of a cinephile himself. When he says a film is good and worth watching, it's worth watching. So... I watched it the first time knowing a bit of the background of the film, but not really knowing the deep dive into what the guts of the film was about. And I quite enjoyed it. And I, I am also a sucker for a good courtroom film. And this has it, but it doesn't dwell on it. And that's one thing. It's not a, a few good men where it's a really dramatic scene that, you know, it's mm-hmm. not one of those. It's, it plays an important role to the film, but it's not necessarily the driver in terms of the action. 
And that's what I liked about the film. The, I mean, we can get into it as we go, but I liked the way it was directed. I liked the acting performances. The storyline was engaging, at least to me, a, a history nerd. And I think the ending, when we get to it, is not all tied up in a bow and kissed off the way a lot of Hollywood-type films would be. I thought one of the more interesting pieces of this is how I actually – I looked forward to both. Like, if they did it – if they're shooting to a flashback, I'm like, ooh, I'm down for this. And then when it goes back to the courtroom, I'm like, ooh, I'm down for this. And even the downtime that they spend interacting with one another within the – I guess the the barracks or the the police or the the jail cells and whatnot, even that was compelling. And then I felt like they even kind of rolled the dice and threw in an attack there on the jail where they're giving them rifles to help them defend the place. Anyway. I was going to say, that cracks me up. Oh, we're going to jail you. You've done all these bad crimes. Okay, now here's a rifle. Go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're all going to die if you don't help. Here you go. So I, I, all of that, I, I thought it made for a very asymmetrical and but very uh, uh, um, um, attractive movie because you really don't know where these action sequences where these these moments of excitement are going to take you is it going to be like a an exceptionally grilling courtroom sequence is it going to be an attack on the compound is it going to be a flashback to them approaching a farmhouse is it going to be just something i mean it could come out of anywhere and uh i don't i don't feel like you're you're ever fully that ready for whatever comes next and that 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 makes it very compelling and when you're thinking of this film would you also consider this a character study yeah, yeah, I can see that, or or I understand that as a, a a thing as well. Just from just from the standpoint, and one other thing I'll say. Sorry, this is a little off topic for what you just said. Is it just me, or do just British regiments all have cool names? A great one in this one. Like I, I'll watch something like. Um, oh gosh, I watched one the other day with Clive Owen, um, and. Uh, Jason Statham, uh, Statham's hunt. Uh, he he wrongs Clive Owen in some way, or they're hunting down these ex SAS people, and they go through a couple of the regimental titles. And I'm like, that's cool, that's cool too. I hate how cool all of these things are. <laughs> Bushfelt <laughs> Carboneers is very Bushfelt cool. Carboneers, man. Like I just I don't know. <laughs> you know, with with what Bill mentioned as a character study. It is, but not too much or not leaning that far to where you are focused on one or uh, too much of like history. We just get some snippets. We, we have some. We even have a flashback back to uh, you know him and his friend, uh, Captain Hunt. You know, oh, I was engaged to his sister. We have just a, the smallest amount of what that was like back then. And you do learn a little bit about him. You know, he's got a, it, whether it's his poetry or whether it's uh, Hancock's uh, proclivities when it comes to like, you know, he tells his wife, I'm not a letter writing man. And then you see he goes gallivanting around the world. All of this stuff, is it's just enough of what you need to give these people some development uh, without really being a deep dive. I think this is uh, right around like 105, 110 minutes, something like that. And um, I thought we, we didn't we didn't get bogged down by the personal histories of these people. We know what we need to, and that kept the pace going. And the other part of this is naming it Breaker Morant. Some people may get disappointed. This is not really a biopic. Right. Right. And so if you think you're getting, you know, from birth to death of General Morant, you're not getting that. 
Right. And if I, if I knew that I probably wouldn't have been as excited you know, the, some some war biopics are, are really fantastic, but the, what we ended up getting here, you know, is I, I think what ended up being what will lead this movie to be uh, like remembered of of the movies we've covered this year. This one, you know, not to tip my hand, but this one is pretty high up there. Yeah, I agree. This is this is one of the best. Uh, I'm going into this film cold picks yeah. we've had just in terms of my enjoyment. And I'll say another thing back on the, the, the character aspect of, of these, these people. Um, I found, found it really interesting them going into the court case, basically just armed with the truth. They never say, no, we didn't execute prisoners. Um, <laughs> and then the links, the, the British hierarchy goes to lie out there, rear to make sure that they get found guilty so uh it's yeah that that that's that's really the uh the the dual picture of this for me is you know these these rough and tumble australians come in armed with the truth and then this this british aristocracy is just lying so well, and, uh, and the other the other aspect that i really enjoy is their reasoning behind why the british went after them when yeah, that right. when such occurrences were I don't know, commonplace is the right word, but it was not right. a blip. Yet these men were made to be scapegoats, or were they? You know, that's mm-hmm. you got to justify that and come to your own conclusion by the end of the film. And that is revealed slowly to you. It is, it is not plainly put early that, like, it, the, you start to realize that the deck is stacked against them and then you start with the flashbacks to realize what the truth is. And it is, it's not a mystery, really. You kind of figure it out and to see how it resolves and the emotional response to its resolution uh, is is something that I'm even now just two days removed from last seeing it. I'm still kind of writing that emotion. Uh, pretty pretty neat way for it to to reveal the information that it does to you in the way that it does. Right on. Well, we're going to take a brief advertising break, and then when we get back, Dustin's going to ruin this film for you. So if you have not seen it yet, hit pause, watch Breaker Morant, and we will be back in just a moment. Welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason. And this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. All right, welcome back. Once again, if you are, uh, or if you have not seen Breaker Morant yet, hit pause, watch the film. Dustin, take it away. The year is 1902 and the Boer War in South Africa is nearing its end. Three officers with the mostly Australian Bushveldt Carboneers have been arrested and charged with murder of Boer prisoners and a German missionary. 
This company had been deployed to mop up the remaining resistance before everyone can say mission accomplished and go home, but Harry Breaker Morant, the officer in command, Peter Hancock and George Witten are court-martialed for these war crimes, defended by Australian attorney Major James Thomas. He valiantly uses what little time he has to dismiss the charges before proceedings begin, but that fails, and we are shown that the odds are weighted against the three officers, as the results of this court-martial will be used politically to end the war for good. Throughout the movie, we see in flashback the events that happened that led to the crimes, including the attack that led to Morant's friend Captain Hunt being killed and mutilated by the enemy, his pursuit in revenge of his friend's death, and his cold and ruthless behavior in accomplishing this avenging plot in the theater of a bloody guerrilla-style war. A new war that had been characterized by brutal tactics, yet those tactics now resulting in severe punishment. These flashbacks do little to exonerate the men once we realize that the deck is stacked against them politically, as the highest in command in South Africa is willing to have the Australian men executed to save thousands more lives in further warfare, with the looming intervention of the Germans on behalf of the Dutch needing to be avoided. Even with a brilliant performance of Major Thomas's lawyerly duties, the men are found guilty, with Morant and Hancock sentenced to death while the younger Witten's sentence is commuted to life imprisonment. In some stunning final shots, Hancock and Morant walk hand in hand to their vista where they enjoy a final sunset before firing squad does their duty. With an 80s specific follow-up on their lives post-movie end, we learn that George Witten only serves three years before being released. All right. Uh, well, thank you for that uh, synopsis of the film, Dustin. Let's talk a little bit about the cast. Uh, this is a whole bunch of people I'm not super familiar with. Um, is there anybody in this cast that you really uh, latched on to? Anybody that you've been used to seeing in film or anybody you really just enjoy? Dustin? Well, it's hard to pinpoint someone before getting to our superlative section, uh, I will also admit that I wasn't familiar with many of these. Uh, and that's also because I'm the one on the show who has seen the fewest movies. But uh, there is something about it's a combo of our cast and wardrobe and just atmosphere that the time period that it all happens that um, the the language seems right. Uh, everybody's demeanor uh, as soldiers or as uh, members of this sort of rough and tumble the, the carboneers themselves uh, everybody seems to fit N not a single one of these actors is someone that for instance if i had been familiar with them would i have said huh this you know th this actor fitting into a soldier's role or an officer's role would uh like surprise me you know uh, it, it was more of just like a, all of these people seem comfortable in this skin. So I'll say that generally about the cast. And I can say that about the supporting cast, too, with the uh, the we can call it like the military aristocracy with Lord Kitchener and his uh, and his major. And we can say that with the the five men who sort of sort serve as our um, as our justices here is that everybody's role is, I think, pretty well executed by by who is in them uh, we do learn that you have your commanding officer who kind of has this you know, the movie's named after him and the historical piece kind of about him we have uh kind of young deer in the headlights style officer that uh brian i know you've talked about like people 
earlier than this, but like, you know, sort of buying their commission or maybe it came from their military schooling, why they'd be an officer. You've got uh, Hancock, who is um, a, a, the closest thing to comedic relief and a fun character. So without picking one guy as my favorite, I will say everybody seems to fit. And it, it, it makes, it, it seemed authentic to me. I wasn't around in 1902, but it does seem to really fit. You know, it's funny, uh, based on something we had talked about a little bit earlier, um, I, I wanted to say I spent so much time trying to find a copy of Breaker Morant's poetry after watching this, and it is an exceedingly difficult thing to find. It gets into a little bit of what Bill said about uh, character studies that, um, you know, let, let's let's talk about Edward Woodward as, as, as Breaker Morant. Um, is it important to this movie that his nickname comes from breaking horses? Well, only in the great shots that we have of horseback riding. Um, aside from that, really what we get about is uh, a little bit of disillusionment with the world and or his, or his life or the war, and we get his poetry. And so that is uh, something that it could have become more flowery or it could have become... Um, a little bit too romantic, but I think we got just enough of that piece of uh, Edward Woodward's portrayal here, where uh, I, I see him more stoic, I see him more a, l a little jaded, but uh, I, I like this type of character. Um, it's very easy to go into tropes, but I think this particular style of leader, uh, imprisoned, awaiting court-martial, um, was maybe something, he didn't fall into a particular trope, which I thought was pretty cool. Sure. Uh, Bill, how are you feeling about the cast of this, their portrayals, and then the characters they were portraying? The cast I found very strong. And two of the actors in particular I'm very familiar with. Uh, and the first being, obviously, Edward Woodward. And I grew up during when I was 10, 11, 12, watching The Equalizer. Mm. And Edward Woodward was the main character in the equalizer kind of this off the off the grid detective trying to solve crimes and the other film i'm very familiar with him in is the wicker man oh yeah and yeah, you guys have seen the wicker man mm -hmm. and the, have, the wicker man the, the remake sorry yeah um the ending to the wicker man i will argue is among the top five endings of any movie many movie any genre period i think it is absolutely it is, it is great it is, it is phenomenal. great when he's when he i won't spoil it for those but let's just say religious hymns won't <laughs> seem the same after you've seen this <laughs> yeah it's hard to talk about the ending of the wicker man without spoiling it so i will leave really but it, it's a fantastic film now not to get us too far off i know that uh, dustin it's and he doesn't mind people diverting so i i went there that's true well that's because he has to work with me <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm horrible i'm mr tangent the the other actor that i was quite familiar with is brian brown yes uh, i remember uh, seeing brian brown, brown in, as a teenager in the movie fx and in the movie cocktail sure and in along came polly so he's been in a bunch, but he's not, you know, your prototypical Robert Redford leading man, seduce a woman, lead a film kind of character. More of a character actor that plays good roles. And so those were the two. The other one I had some familiarity with is director Bruce Beresford. And Bruce Beresford, 
I don't know if he won the Academy Award, but he directed Driving Miss Daisy. He also directed a Canadian film called Black Robe, which won a lot of awards up in Canada about uh, the North American natives in, uh, in Canada. So the man knows how to shoot a film. He knows how to shoot a historical piece. And he knows the lay of the land and how to set up shots. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious in this film the budget was not grandiose. But I think he did a good job, him and the cinematographer, kind of setting the scene, setting the stage. You've got some nice shots of the battlefields, but without being graphically sticking to huge scenes. Like, there's no Tom Hanks avoiding bullets. There's Mm -hmm. no face blown up. But you do get the sense there is some violence, but it's violence where it's needed. Not for excessive not for being there just for the point of having some red on the screen. There's a reason for it. And I think Beresford did an excellent job. Other one, I, ha- I did know a little bit about Jack Thompson. Uh, Jack Thompson, I remember from being in the film Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Mm-hmm. But for those people that are more on the sci-fi end, he was in Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones. His portrayal, and I think... I, we are a little weighted or a little biased towards uh, this guy is asked to do something and he's way out of his element. Um, he, he's coming in. He is a major, but he, he's coming in. He, his practice was uh, fairly ho-hum milk toast, and he's coming in to defend these these men, and that's something that uh, does draw you towards um, uh, th- this is someone to root for, like his success. Uh, it not 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 the success of Breaker or his men or what their deeds were. It's it's the success of of just you have a job to do. Go and do it as well as you can. And uh, for being not familiar with Jack Thompson, I thought he really sh- shined in this. Uh, and we do get one of my favorite things in a courtroom movie is we do get a, a small amount of time. Is it John Waters who plays the prosecutor, Alfred Taylor? Is that the right name there? I believe uh, Essentially, so. we, we do get one, just one moment where they are speaking to one another and they are not in the courtroom. And that is, it's one of the things that we know that about the world of attorneys is that they all know one another and that they either have their cordiality or their rivalries. But these men don't know one another. They're adversaries in the room. But, you know, it, outside they, you know, one of them's having a coffee. The other one shows up just to kind of talk about the the grand scheme of what's going on. Uh, and I always I always dig that. We recently watched uh, Inherit the Wind. Oh, Inherit the uh, Wind. Wow. Okay. Another great courtroom drama. One of the things that got me towards like, wow, I must like this a lot. Either that or I just happened one to watch One of my dad's favorite ones. films growing up. So whenever it was on TV, I watched. Yeah. Uh, and that's where when we got outside of the courtroom, you got to see the way these people interact. And um, I would say it's it's mainly we get Jack Thompson inside the courtroom. But I feel as if I would be compelled by however his portrayals of in other movies he... He he really, I'm not going to say stole the spotlight, but he 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 shined for certain. There there are a couple of things I always look for in a good courtroom film, and one thing we didn't get here, which I appreciated, versus say, 
a few good men. You know the truth. You can. Uh-huh. You didn't get that, which you don't get the one line zinger, which I really liked. Like it again. It's that I wouldn't say anti Hollywood. It's more different styles to create a film, and he gave the points that he wanted to as a director and towards the actors, but he didn't belabor the point. And he wasn't he wasn't looking one. for the fifteen second uh TikTok shot. He was looking for the the almost the fullness of the scenario versus the two minute scene. I would agree uh, as to it's the process as it unfolds and you see as the information is revealed that I'm not gonna go so far as to say kangaroo court and I'm not saying that because of the Australian nature of this film, but it, we, we do understand the deck is stacked against them, but it's, it's, the, it's recognizing the rigmarole, seeing the facade of justice. Uh, that is more impactful as a slow rollout, as a molasses reveal, instead of some emotional outburst. Now, we do get one, uh, which is the we live by rule 303. And it's cool, but is it's not the thing that I think I'll remember about this. In fact, uh, as I was kind of prepping for the show, I, I was going back through the scenes and the shots, and I was like, ah, you know, that that is kind of an outburst. But Breaker Morant, the character himself, is not an outburst kind of guy. He does make decisions and follow through with them. But uh, he was that was the biggest outburst that we got from him, and in the end, it didn't change any minds. Not not with that tribunal. It was more of a. Uh, I've kind of reached my limit. How do you not understand this? So um, I th- I thought that w- even with that outburst, it was more of the the atmosphere of this room, this kind of sham that we're dealing with. And then we leave the room, right? We leave the room and we go back to these flashbacks. And so our first instance of this flashback uh, now this was the second time you had seen it, but uh, were you expecting that they would have stuck with the black and white when they ever, whenever they go to flashback? Did it surprise you that they did that and then decided not to stick with it? Well, I, I remember the first time I watched it, and if you're not paying attention, they almost kind of bleed into each other. They do. You really have to... I wouldn't say you have to be on your game, but you can't be distracted by something else. You need to watch it and just keep going to make sure, okay, now they're flipped back. Now they're in the presence. Now they're in, you know, two weeks prior. Right. So I like the use of flashbacks as an effective tool to tell a story. You have to be cognizant, though. Yes. You you can't be uh, drunk. You can't be talking to your wife. You can't be helping your daughter get ready or your son get ready for school. You have to commit yourself to watching. It, that's really something that hopefully, dear listeners, you uh, you, if you're someone who likes to do your homework for a movie, you like to listen to a podcast about a movie, then you got to be one of those people that when you turn the movie on, this is what you're doing. You, you've got one free hand for popcorn, but essentially you, you are uh, trying to delve in. And this movie, uh, it does allow you to because the the difference in flashback is essentially they're stuck, imprisoned for the court martial, or they're out in the field. Uh, the time that you could potentially get most confused is when the Bora attack happens and you have uh, you open the cells, grab your rifle, 
And we get to see the Carboneers really do some work here. Uh, I think we had briefly mentioned before the show that like this is kind of a your surprise action shot. I thought it was really well done. Yeah, the, the one aspect to the courtroom and a good courtroom in general that I appreciate is a good closing argument. I mean, you think of a film like To Kill a Mockingbird. Everybody remembers the final Gregory Peck uh, argument to the jurors. Well, I thought that Thompson did a phenomenal job with giving his point of view without, you know, it, it was maybe five minutes. But it was, I thought, well thought out. The irony is, is when I did just a touch of research, not much, there uh-huh. are no court records of this. Oh. So, uh, there, you know, there is no transcript from two, you know, two thousand or sorry, nineteen o two. Right. So, I don't know if it's going on hearsay, memory, memoirs, diaries, military record. So you have to wonder how much is. And it goes back to the question that had been asked me before about historical accuracy in films. Some of it. You have to fudge a little. And yeah. and we know the end result of that is record, but who knows what they said on day two of the trial or whatever, you know? Yeah, you know, that I, I got to say, you, you're you're on the money with uh, the, the closing argument. And uh, what we get is someone whose practice isn't in uh, high stakes. What did they say? He's like uh, real estate wills. law or something? It, I, the the fun the funny line was like yeah I do real estate law I do contracts and I do wills and I think it's when he says I do wills that Hancock's like oh that's going to be important <laughs> uh, that's pretty good right the the, the 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 one of the best traits of a movie that is not a comedy is when the humor is welcome the humor is definitely welcome here yeah. because the courtroom is so drab and the wartime efforts are so dire that when you get a chance to smile or chuckle that's that's good stuff other, i was gonna you say know. the other thing i like is the fact that this important trial takes place in an outbuilding within a guarded uh, military fortress like right. it's not in some high supreme court it's it's not taking place in front of the queen or it's literally in a building that might otherwise be used as a mess hall. Yeah. This is just the cleanest room with the most space. It makes sense for us. Yep. Put a couple tables in there, one chair in the middle of the defense and the prosecution. Uh, that was interesting too, because I think we are used to, at least here in the States or at least in North America, like what uh, courtrooms generally look like in movies or media. Uh, and so this is like, Hey, this just works. Let's go for it. Um, now, the, the courtroom proceedings as well, we have uh, a couple of witnesses here. Or we have a couple of uh, people brought on stand, uh, all of them by the prosecution. And then you have uh, Thompson's character, Major Thomas, who kind of has to, has to interrupt and jump in because the, the tribunal is not willing to give him any time, really. Uh, he's just kind of there. It's a dog and pony show. He's there to defend, but not really. They already know. And, and so... Uh, we have of of all of the it's just a short amount of time some of them are more important than others we do have uh the boar translator we have someone who had served with hancock in the carboneers before and they bring him on to discuss his tactics for stopping the boars from blowing up trains uh, we have 
uh, the the Lord Admiral, no, that's not a Lord Kitchener, who is the highest in command of um, in South Africa. Uh, they send his second to, to come in, and I think I think a short amount of time on screen, but also a bright spot. Uh, his his acting uh, of these people brought in, uh, which one of these like stood out as more important to the story, or maybe your performance? Which one of these uh, witnesses was like ah oh, th- that really helped move things along? Uh, the one I enjoyed was I forget the character's name. It wasn't uh, Christian Botha, although it was an interesting role. Was the who's the ac- actor? Was it Ray Mager? The one that came- Ray Mager was uh, Sergeant Major Drummond, which who was the one that came on and was talking about the tactics and he's no longer in the military. That's right. Uh, it, you know what? Even after two watches, it's hard for me to yeah, get, I get all, all of the details. But there was but one who was one brought in about. by the prosecution to yes. basically slander the character of Baker Morant. And essentially, he almost uh, impugned the prosecution. He was not a strong witness. Right. And his moral character came into play just as much as Breakers did. Correct. And I think, you know, had the trial have been on the fair limit, you know, like, like even ice on either side, I think that might have been their downfall. You you just brought up something that I want to I want to take a little time on, which is, I think frequently in courtroom dramas or when we're dealing with someone on death row or we're dealing with a crime, that we we do seek the morality or we seek the side that they're on, the side of good for all, the side of good for some. We we do look for that as audiences, and I have members of my family, I have friends who uh, occasionally will side with someone because of the organization they're part of as opposed to the morality that they actually have. Tell me a little bit about in this movie with Breaker Morant in particular, but let's talk about all three officers. We do learn about their morality and we learn the truth through flashback. And I think this is a rare occurrence where it's like, you see that these guys are guilty. Well, I I was going to get into this later in the, podcast but there is some debate within australia you know he comes off as this folk hero uh there is some substance to the fact that he was not a nice man he he may very well have been guilty of what is accused of him and there are some people that want his name struck off and you know glorified back to what it should have been but there are a fair chunk of people that think at least a, a significant minority that believe no 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 he got what was coming to him and what was coming to him was a a pretty clear that there's different ways to use the phrase but it's a it's a double standard the idea that this is a tough war we don't have the food or provisions to take prisoners we cannot feed these people it's better for us and everyone that you just execute them and so we know that this, well, actually, I think it's still left, it's left intentionally unanswered. Did Kitchener, did Lord Kitchener say, kill all the board prisoners, we don't have time for this. It's not expressed in the movie. And it may not be expressed in historical record. It may not be expressed in the play that this is based on, which I love. I think that is great to not have that detail. 
The second thing is, well, it was told to Captain Hunt, and Captain Hunt said this to break Moran, and Captain Hunt's dead, so nobody knows what he said. So were you guys acting under orders? We get the same Nuremberg defense thing here, where it's just following orders. And even though we do know that the the just following orders has its own moral uh, weight to it, uh, we actually see in our flashbacks that it's not so cut and dry. So for our, our youngest officer, uh, we're, when we're talking about George Witten, uh, played by Louis Fitzgerald, uh, we see that in his instance, the person that he kills is in self-defense. And then we see in, uh, in some other flashback that I think this was a, a killer move, uh, no pun intended, is that Breaker doesn't even tell Hancock to go kill the German missionary. He doesn't even say it. Well, when you, the, when you pose the question about morality, all three of them have different levels of morality questions brought upon them as a result of these flashbacks. I agree. I mean, Brian Brown, about an hour in, is out, let's just say, carousing for ladies who are available. Yeah. You know, is that the right thing? He's got a wife back home, but you know what? I haven't seen her for a while and she's moved on. And blah, 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 blah. He's trying to justify right. basically getting a lay in the field. And and then you've got the young officer who literally is be doing what he's told by shooting. But then when a legitimate self-defense action occurs, he's, he's being punished for doing what 99% of people would do. Right and and is Breaker Morant following military order? Is he fill it, Is he doing a uh, an order that was brought down orally, or is he just avenging the the death of his friend? Is he is he Charles Bronson in 1902? Uh huh. Yeah. So each one of them isn't without their warts. <laughs> yes, and I think it's it's pretty clearly shown that the rest of the Carboneers Company. They're seeing their leader go off the deep end. Hey, chill, chill. Just relax. You don't, we, we don't, they're all like, we don't want to do this. But, you know, uh, the chain of command, you got to follow. Uh, uh, and it, I think it, it's really nice to be presented with a movie where once the information does get to you, boy, th there, there is no white knight to this. And the way that they accept their actions and their punishments kind of wraps it up, wraps it up in a way that's like, yeah, uh, when you mentioned they got what's coming to them, they did, and they knew it too. Now, the, the, the one aspect I did make mention a few times of this, it wasn't Hollywooded up, but I do think they romanticized a little bit towards the end Woodward and his poetry and his facing death and coming up with the poem, you know, he may very well have done it, but right. having done a ton of, a little bit of research, it didn't occur the way it happened in the film where they're sitting in this barren land on a chair. It happened in a, in a public square. Like it happened in a, a real public. So that element to it was added for the je ne sais quoi to make it memorable yeah. for the end of the film. It's romantically finished. It wasn't really romantically done. He, he he was tried fairly or wrongly, and he was shot military style. Like yeah, it, it, it was you know next. Okay, who's the next guy up? Right. So right, and uh, you know, in, in the general context, we remember that 
it it is done and the morals of sacrifice three to end this war yeah and that's something that if it wasn't clear to you they they really do lay it out in your last 30 minutes i mean the one scene i i I did like and it gave me a bit of a smile being a bit of a political pundit as well i like this scene with kitchener back in england when they're discussing what are we going to do here we're legitimately being told to go to the trial how are we going to handle this well, and I think the the best part there was uh, it's another instance of when he tells his second, his major, I think you know what to say. As in, like, he is staying squeaky clean out of this. Ain't no way they're getting me in that Yet. Room. You're going to go. Yet his intentions were implied quite strongly. Not j- And implied strongly enough for the character to know, but also implied strongly enough for us, the audience, to know. If you are, you know, being cognizant, you're paying attention. Uh, so I think that was uh, that was really something special. You know, I run across it a lot in film where you're asked, you know, do you agree in a way or do you sympathize with how a character acted or reacted to a certain situation? And in film, it's by and large built to your sympathies to the to the primary character very rarely are they like hey look at the messed up thing this guy did it's usually like you know something that everyone else doesn't know haven't seen everything and so you're on the side of whoever you know did it um this this film really isn't any different although i do enjoy how it was shot in a way to let you have your own decision on whether or not his actions were correct. And I feel like it didn't really leave a lot of ambiguity about, you know, it just shows the raw act and it really didn't do it in a, a sympathetic or unsympathetic way. So you see the, the, the moral qualms the men have, um, but you also see the lengths at which the hierarchy is willing to go to paint him a certain way, which you also feel is wrong. So I, I guess in the end, the thing I would praise this movie for is to be, you know, is being fairly even handed for the watcher to make its own decision. Now, me personally, uh, I, I would side with them. I, I think everything that they did there was, I, I didn't have a problem with anything that happened there. Uh, I didn't even have really uh, uh, all that uh, uh, hard a time agreeing with uh, Brian Brown's, you know, point points of view on life through most of it. So um, he, uh, you know, he he was definitely a character that uh, made the movie. His value added to the film was high. So um, I guess a roundabout way of saying me personally. I didn't I you know I wouldn't have convicted him of anything. I agree with the two sympathetic judges I, I would say uh, but right. I could also see a watcher seeing it and saying this is morally reprehensible and shoot him. Yeah, I, I, I think I generally agree with uh, <clears throat> for, for someone to think to think that they are acting within the set of rules that they're supposed to live within and then to, to acknowledge and this is so so well done by our our 
Major Thomas, who's defending them, is like, this is different. The war is different. You've asked, you put this company together to go do the worst part that nobody else wanted to do. And you have them go do it. And they do it harshly and they do it roughly and brutally because the war back our way is still brutal, this guerrilla style. And the thing you asked them to do is the thing you're going to hang them for. Now, anytime the man is going back on his word, I'm going to be against that 100% of the time. You know that, Brian. I'm I'm anti the man all the way. And so in, right. in this instance, I'm of course I'm going to root for that. But I think this movie does a great job of showing you that, like, hey, it's not like Breaker was some kind of hero. Um, instead, uh, we we get his. It's it's very clearly shown to us that this is revenge. And that everyone else is kind of going against it. Uh, we briefly talked about the romanticism of the poetry, but I think w- we haven't talked about these sort of uh, uh, in-between scenes, the downtime scenes. I know, Brian, you mentioned that earlier. Yeah, I, I actually really like it. Um, I, I I enjoy movies that show the camaraderie among soldiers. Um, it, it's something that I feel is a, it's a, a worthy seg- segue, especially in a movie like this, when there are moral questions coming to light. And although there's a difference between Morant and Hancock, it's like the difference between two veterans who get it and then the young guy who doesn't. And... <laughs> And, you know, you're left with the question, is the, you know, bright eyed guy who thinks that they're, you know, that they don't, aren't wearing white hats, right? Versus are the two grizzled veterans who, you know, made some of these deci- rough decisions, right? So yeah, their hats um, been pretty dirty but you needed while. that. You needed to have, um, you needed to have the instances where they are f- frankly confessing to one another as much as you needed the 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 battle in the courtroom over whether their deeds were correct or not there's an interesting part about the there are three main uh, defendants here an interesting part where uh i think it's about an hour 20 in where uh witten the young one ha- is actually asking hancock what happened out there who 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 killed the german missionary and i think his answer is probably me i did uh and uh the the thing that it seems like such a small micro issue in the middle of the high stakes of everything that's going on is we've all done all this stuff but we haven't lied and that's what he's worried about is now we've lied like hey we the writing's on the wall we know what's coming so what's the point that is, um, I think, just another another aspect of our, our Hancock character and the resignment of we know what's going to happen from Breaker Morant. Uh, and, and then you couple that with uh, uh, Fitzgerald or uh, Witten, young Witten's uh, sort of outburst when he's he's calling out from outside of his cell um, you know, as he's being led out of the – he knows what's coming. Uh, it's – when you get the outburst, when you get the emotion in this, um, it it does it pulls at the heartstrings. And I thought, um, Bill, you mentioned that our director knows how to shoot. Uh, we've got just tons of incredible scenes and shots, and uh, it, it made my superlative section really hard to lay out. The the other aspect we were talking about morality, and Woodward, you kind of think you know his mind frame. 
And then he's thrown, you're thrown a bit of a loop as a viewer where he's given the option by one of his co-workers, co-soldiers, That's you want right. me to kind of set it up mean. how you just kind of go away? He was like, yeah. you know what? I've lived this world. I'm going to live by the sword, die by the sword. He makes the moral choice not to try to escape. Right. Yeah. yeah, I think that's what he even says that. Like, where are you going to go? Go to the Portuguese side. Go see the world. Ah, I've seen the world. <laughs> He's yeah. kind of resigned to the fact I'm going to be shot. And perhaps within his own psyche, whether you're rooting for him to make it or not, um, you know, there was, there was a moment there when I said, ah, maybe he should take that. But I think in general, in looking back, I'm like, he, his character knows that he... His, this choice that he makes is correct for him. Whatever, not, whatever fate is willing to deal, he'll accept. Yeah. Yeah, I've had enough autonomy and agency to do what I have done, and the devil's come to collect his due. I mean, you kind of get it, the impression he's in his late 50s. You know, he's, you know, he's seen the world. He's had his fair share of dalliances, and now it's you know, time to pay the piper. Yes. Uh, you know... I remember you saying that you are a history guy or, uh, and you have your honors degree in history. Uh, I don't, uh, you, I'm, I'm certain I'm wrong, but I don't know very many uh, South African war movies or about the Boer War. So this is something that was um, you know, a little different for me, which is a nice change of pace. We've seen enough uh, World War I and World War II movies. I'm on record on the show saying they didn't, they've never made a bad World War I movie. Um, but this, this, this sort of time period and atmosphere i think is it was it was a welcome change uh, if this had been uh something that was a little more uh well known like our like our our larger conflicts or our more like historically popular conflicts in terms of focus of media um i'm not gonna say it took it away but i think it has its unique place is like this is even just involving like an australian cavalry or the the, the carboneers i think that is something special about the atmosphere here absolutely there's a it's almost like you're watching and you you never take a movie as 100% truth to learn as a textbook but you do sure. get for those unfamiliar with you do get a quick education in what was going on in that war that i guarantee 95% of north americans know very little about so sure i'm one of them so you're you're really diving into the deep end without any way to save you. So you're learning as you go, but you're kind of engrossed by the characters. The setting is uh, foreign enough and far away enough that you're exotic enough. You don't know much about it and you're there for the story. And I found myself even the second time sucked in whether you believe it whether you think it's a realistic portrayal, whether you think the themes being shown are accurate, you are engaged as a viewer. Did you at all think that the flashbacks we were seeing were uh, untrue? Did, did, you, did you at all think that, ooh, is this a decision to show us uh, a rec- uh, an inaccurate recollection of what had happened? I think it was at times through the lens of Woodward. Yeah. Because you didn't see a flashback that put him in a negative light. It was either his decision or the circumstances surrounding what was happening that made the decision. 
And so yeah, I think that's important. I think it was shown interestingly enough, it, though the flashbacks were thrown through his light, but the film itself was going against him. Yes, I would agree. And so again, it leaves if you're an educated viewer, an uneducated viewer, and I don't mean that the viewer isn't educated, just familiar with the war uh, in South Africa, you, you're still left with your own decision. Do you think it was against him? And do you think he made the right choice at a given time? Yeah. And it's following the chain of command or saying like, this is what's approved and this is what we're going to do. Uh, it's still, it, that can sometimes make it seem like it's the easy choice. Like I'm just, I'm just doing what was told. Uh, but I think what we see from our reactions from our soldiers and the rest of the carboneers and what we see from like some of our, our members of the tribunal is that uh, e even the protocol choice is difficult. It is and difficult, but that's, look, put that's it, cool. Put it, put your head the other way. If you're Witten and you say no, and the whole lineup of soldiers say no to shooting. There's repercussions on you. So yeah. he is literally following orders. And that's, you know, a stamp of, you know, I'm just a mouthpiece. I'm a literally a gun piece to their orders. But you really don't have a lot of choice. Yeah. Insubordination in that in that aspect, it could lead to a worse tarnishing of your legacy than lying about what happened exactly. uh, in war times, people killing one. another. And I think the soldiers see what's going on around it. If I don't shoot him, I'm going to be ending up in that pile. Right. You know, right. Or or. Uh, you know, if, if I end up com uh, complete insubordination, then I might end up hanged in public square and that my family name is. That's ruined. right. You know, you're shamed, your wife, your mom, whomever. And yeah. so, you know, I don't envy somebody in that situation. Well, and that's it's also great to get when you talked about our character development earlier. We talked about like our character story is with young Witten here. I think he's talking to the, his two older uh, comrades while they're shaving. Uh, in in the cell, and he's like, "Yeah, I I enlisted because I believe in the empire," and you can just see their role in there as a believe in the empire. Do you? Yeah, okay, <laughs> sure, sure, yeah. I'm, that's gonna really work out for you. And um, in the end, you know, to to see how this, uh, you know, very patriotic view of why you enlist. It's uh, to, to, they all have their different reasons for being there, but uh, the. Rule three hundred three, or we'll say the, the the being on the other side of that of that rifle doesn't matter why you joined. Uh, it's coming at you. No I, matter mean, what. I mean, you can tell Witten is I don't know mid mid twenties, and 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 Byron Brown is at least in his late thirties, and Woodward's at least in his mid fifties. They know what they're doing. They know the game. They know how decisions are made and why they're made. Whereas the other one might be a little bit more wide eyed and naive. But he yeah, still he has his own thought process. Yeah. Yeah. Something must guide me while I'm here. Yeah. And, and uh, now the question I'll ask to you, do you think Woodward was a father figure to either character? I think with the adjustment of maybe 10 minutes of um, movie time, perhaps that could have been so. I'm, I don't think so. I'm going to go with no. Um, but I think it, it's possible that it could have. We know that he was in command 
but he wasn't the only one. There was a it was a shared command with uh, Captain Hunt. Captain Hunt's loss maybe makes me think that Captain Hunt was closer to a, if not dad, at least to the cool uncle that we want to follow the footsteps in. Um, I, I would say that Morant had like the the necessary leadership to kind of lead the Rough Riders, but. Did I did I see him as a father figure? No. But do you, but do you think Witten did, in terms of following his mannerisms and the way he handled himself? In that sense, yes, I can see it, and it falls into the like "don't meet your heroes" uh, trope, yeah. where it's like, okay, yeah, th- this guy. Um, I had this view of. Um, and we see it in other war movies where it, uh, the leader is some kind of almost mythical type of uh, hero or someone to to follow. And um, I, I could see that being maybe slightly eroded through the movie. Um, but he does have to hold on to it is, well, hold on. No, you are you're the only guide guide that I have. Uh, in leading these the the carboneers and so it's like he's I would say he's he's more desperate that he's a father figure than he is than I see it in in Harry Breaker Morant showing that he is so the other the other question I you know I'll, I'll just throw at you is which of the three defendants did you identify with most or which one did you enjoy watching go through the process more that is that is a good question. Hopefully, you'll you'll uh, reward me with your answer to the question sure. after I'm done. Uh, th- I th- I think it would have to be Breaker. It would have to be actually the leader. One because he's gone through it longer, and when it comes to personal struggle within organizational structure, that's something that I've dealt with my whole life, and. When I see that in another character, sometimes you have, you have the character that is jaded and going to try to get away with stuff, and that's that's our Hancock, and then we have our our Greenhorn um, Witten. So of the three, um, I, I think it's Breaker. I also on my resume I have unpublished poet. So because of that, uh, I would say romanticizing anything in terms of you know whether it's a song or whether it's a poem, uh, that that's probably why. Um, and, and I'm not including any of what I would consider my own natural leadership in my career or my friend group or whatever, but I would say it's Breaker. What about you? I, I do agree. I think Breaker almost by default because he's the most detailed character that we're given. We're, we're given a little bit more of his background. We're kind of given a little bit more into his mindset and his actions I think Brian Brown is an interesting character. Uh, I, I think he's a fascinating, he's almost that wild buck who you go to the bar with, you know it's going to be a good time, but you're not quite sure how the night's going to end. <laughs> yeah. That's him. Yeah. When you get to Witten, you're getting more of, I wouldn't say stooge, but I would say he's there to play the role of that character. You don't, for a guy that's being the third guy in that trial, you really get very little insight into him. I agree. And I was always curious. You know, they spent a lot of time. One of my criticisms of the film, if there can be one, mm-hmm. is I could have probably cut about 10 minutes. And well, and some, uh, I was going to say some of that. I love a tight 90. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's not that I'm against film for the sake of 
if, if you need it, you need it. But I think some of the flashbacks, I think, went a bit on the longest side. If you cut sure. two minutes off each flashback, you've got your 90 minutes. To, uh, to change your question a bit more, though, if I had to identify with any of the three, I would actually change it. Could I identify with any of the four? Because I do consider our Major Thomas as sort of part of that side. And uh, Major Thomas's duty to defend the people where the deck is stacked against that is something that I think a lot of people would want to say they identify with. And, you know, for instance, I've got, I've got 20 employees in my region and I am the buffer between the wor the corporate world and their world. And so that means I have to act on their behalf and I need to speak on their behalf. And I need to protect them from the corporate BS red tape stuff. So that's where I think I, I would kind of identify with our major here as well. But um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a fun exercise to do. And, and to go back to your previous point of them, you know, being cordial with the prosecutor and the defense. I mean, the way at least they portray it is that Thompson was much stronger than they anticipated. Yeah. He, yeah. he was basically an estate and will lawyer being thrown into a criminal defense. And what I did feel for him, and as somebody who has a little bit of dabbling in the, in the legal field, is that no matter how hard he tried, no matter what legal precedent he had, it got thrown against him. The only right. the only one that went with him was when he wanted to get Kitchener. And that was basically by, based on precedent that there's no reason he can't. He's allowed a full defense. And they couldn't justify within the means of their legal system not allowing it. But otherwise, every single time he tried to discredit a witness, every single time he brought anything that went to a motivation, the judge yeah. basically threw it out. Yeah, and the more that happened, the more you saw that, like, wow, is there any avenue where it could win? We do get that one scene where they are toasting with champagne because the particular one of the three main charges is, like, acquitted. Like, okay, we're not pursuing that anymore. Um, I was watching this with my friend, and my friend was like, well, what just happened there? I'm like, well, they're still all on the hook here. But they're celebrating because they did get a little minor victory there. And, and the but thing I is, if you're in that situation, that any minor victory may be enough to boost your morale. It'll it'll boost your morale, and then uh, you know, as part of the entire thing, uh, I've I've mentioned this before. When it comes to courtroom movies, or when it comes to real life media stories, um, when it comes to the court of public opinion, or when it comes to whenever you are accused of a crime and you're on the stand, or whatever it is, you're defendant. You it is not a dichotomy between guilty and innocent. You're never innocent again. It's it, like at least in Canada, it's, it's guilty and not guilty. Well, I was going to say in Canada, in, in Canada guilty. for a civil case, it's the uh -huh. balance of probabilities. So okay. you're not saying that they're uh, innocent, but they're just not been proven guilty, right? And so you have to play that balance. Morant might be a real piece of work, but that, does sure. that mean he's guilty? It, it, right and so you're working well that's yeah go ahead that that's that's really where they come to with hancock like i look at all three of these defendants as uh you know different points on a spectrum 
where you have the super naive, I believe in the empire, uh, you know, good boy. And then you have breaker (laughs) who still holds some, you know, vestiges of honor, but he also, it's not his first rodeo. So he's also been worn down by the, the, uh, you know, the, being a soldier his whole life. And then you have Hancock who frankly, I think would have been down for anything. Like if you had said coming into the thing, Hey, we're going to lie the entire time. He'd be like, Oh, Roger that. Like, yeah, you know, he, he's, you know, he's the guy sleeping with married women. He's the guy who knows what a soldier's life. He was game for it. He was game for shooting people. He didn't even need to be told. He goes, Hey, I'm going to, Oh, that guy just left. Okay. I'll be, you know, I'm going to go take care of this. So, I feel I view them all on a spectrum. So it just depends on how, you know, conservative, moderate to <laughs> liberal you are on this on this line of what you're willing to do. And the other part of it is is how willing Morant and uh, Brown were to just accept their fate. Yes. Like like maybe it was the portrayal or the writing or maybe something was edited out, whatever, but you didn't see Brown kick up a fuss. Well, I think when you've been a soldier for a certain amount of time, it's the same way that uh, not to bring up different film in this, but it's kind of the, uh, the Lieutenant Spears of band of brothers, um, kind of personality who says, you've got to accept the fact that you're already dead. And, Morant and Hancock have that, you know, we've been a soldier long enough that we know we were, we were dead when we enlisted and, you know, the young one hasn't gotten that grizzled veteran perspective yet. Right. Yeah. Uh, th- this, I, th- I think we might be shown or you, we might just based on the odds presented at first, we might be willing to root for the chance that they get off, that they, that they are found not guilty. However, we know that maybe two of the three of them kind of never believed in the first place. That Like, hey, you got to give us our best shot. But they knew what they did. And that is, as it's revealed to you, I think, just one of the stunning things about this movie. And I, th- I think... It, well, they knew what... I was going to say, I think it makes you feel good that at the end, the young one was commuted to life yes. and then subsequently served three years. Correct. I think everybody who was in that situation, as I've stated before, probably would have done what he did. Someone's jumping you. Your life's at danger. You've got a gun and you pop them in the stomach. Well, how many people would just say, yeah, okay, attack me. You know, like he's going to do what he's going to do. Well, and I'll go one step further. When you said earlier, uh, you know, 99% of people would have done what he did. The th- in the back of my mind, first thing I thought was, and the other one percent would be dead now. Yeah, yeah. So not only do I completely agree that it was self-defense, he had every right to shoot him, but if he had been part of the one percent who didn't shoot him, he probably would not be living. So yeah, and, you know, and, I don't, I don't think there's there, there's an easy out for that. And as a viewer, you're, you're like, of course, it makes sense. You know, who wouldn't? Mm-hmm. You know, so right. it, it kind of engages yep. you into a character that otherwise we're given very little with. Agreed. Dustin, you want to go into superlatives? I'm ready. All right. Let's 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 All knock right. this out. Uh, I'm going to start with you, Bill. Who is your MVP for Breaker Morant? My MVP is Jack Thompson. I I thought he was 
well above grade in terms of his performance for this film. I, I completely understood where he was going. And I think the whole audience understood where he was going. And you felt his frustration when his valiant efforts were not rewarded. I was just going to agree. Uh, he's my MVP as well. And uh, just so I don't overlap with anything you said, I also think that his acting performance in this, given the fact that he went from basically zero to 60 from, you know, just being handed a job to not just performing it well, but performing it better than anyone could have hoped for a seasoned litigator um, his his portrayal of that tenacity is superb. The other aspect, if I could give it its own category, is just that final argument. Mm. You know, it was only two, three minutes, but he nailed it. Like when you go to law school and they tell you to do this, that, and the other, he gave you this, that, and the other, and it still fell on deaf ears. Yep. Well, and, you know, it's it's the whole cynicism of the whole movie. They, this was a foregone conclusion, and there not only was it so foregone that everybody was patting themselves on the back for giving themselves an out to a war, but they're they're then frustrated that the lawyer's doing such a great job. They're like, well, he's he's putting up a really good defense. Crap. Yeah. <laughs> and, and if I may give a third superlative, it's the Charles <laughs> Bud Kingwell's mustache. I thought be, that was great. That's, that's, that was amazing. That's, that's, <laughs> yes. That was phenomenal. Yeah. That was like really finger. Yeah, sorry. Uh, Dustin. Hey, we're three for three. He's my MVP as well. And uh, I don't know how you don't give it to him. I mean, I know Woodward's technically the main character, but the only person, you know, he's relegated to being silent most of the film. Like you get whispers, facial expressions, like there's giant chunks of this movie where he's nonverbal because right. it's up to Thompson to be, you know, the legal presence. So I, I just think that, that it's hard not to give it to Thompson for the fact that a lot of the passion that comes from this film comes from Thompson. One of the hardest things to do is to differentiate between acting performance and well-written character. And in this sure. case, what we get is we get both. And even still, I had no qualms of saying, oh, Jack Thompson's performance. So, yeah, we're three for three, y'all. Awesome. All right. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's do something very similar and go with our uh, best supporting actor. Uh, we'll start with you, Dustin, this time. Brian Brown is Peter Hancock. Uh, he, he had a fun uh, style character to play. He was uh, his own version of grizzled and over it. Uh, he knows what he did. I, I think he, the 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 icing on the cake for him was when he understands that he he says to Breaker, "Hey, the missionary talked to the prisoners," and without being ordered what to do, like I'm on it, and he goes off. Uh, the the idea of being sort of the pendulum swinging towards being a bit of comic relief, but then the pendulum swing towards I know what I'm here to do. Uh, so I, I thought that was a, a great performance by him. And let me just say this out loud. This is a heck of a shot, too. Yeah. yeah I was going to say, especially considering the quality of the guns in 1900. Right, right. Uh, Bill, uh, who's your supporting? I'm going to throw out a name nobody's mentioned just because I want it out there. And I'm going to say Rod Molinar, who played Major Charles Bolton, the prosecuting attorney. Mm. because okay. he really played the role of someone you're not supposed to like very well. 
because it, he didn't, he wasn't floating through, but he didn't have to work nearly as hard as Jack Thompson did. Mm-hmm. And he, he literally just had to present the facts as the military wanted them to be seen. And they were pretty much accepted. And that scene we were talking about where he was talking with Thompson about trying to do some negotiations and maybe your country of Australia isn't going to be seen in the best of light if you continue with this. You know what? It, it, it's easy to play somebody who's going to be shown in a positive light. It's not easy to play somebody that's shown in a negative light. Mm-hmm. And I think he probably played that role about as well as you can. Sure. He did a great job. Uh, I can also I, say I could see him very easily in the same role. If we like replace his mustache with like a barrister's wig, he could be that role in like throughout all types of period pieces. Uh, he really did fit that well. Sure. Uh, I'm, I'm in agreement with Dustin on this one. Uh, Brian Brown's character. He's probably my favorite character of the movie. Um, I'm, I'm not going to give it like MP, MVP caliber because he is more of a supporting role, but yeah, uh, he, uh, just really entertaining. Like I, he was one of the more entertaining aspects of the, the film. one scene where he comes around and sees the woman and he's like, and she gives him a big hug, you know, full breast forward, you know, big band hug. And uh, she's, she's, she's bringing him into the, into the house. He's like, oh, can I sit down? Can I have a cup of coffee again? And she's like, oh, just follow me to the bed. <laughs> and he's like, well, all right. All right. Do I keep my boots on? You know, that's that kind of question, you know? The, the director did not have to show the boots on the edge of the, the bed like he did. The, those were all decisions and from different areas in the house. Uh, yeah, and, yeah, and sp- speaking of like the director's decisions, it's very hard. We've talked about it on the show. To when you have a space in one room, especially a courtroom. Hey, we talked about cube earlier. When you only have one style room, you have to get creative with where you're shooting from. And they're shooting I mean, from it, the edge of the side of the bed. They're shooting from down the hallway as he rides up. It's all so well done. It, it very well reminded. I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, Hammer Studios from England, who did uh, horror films in the '60s and '70s. You know, you have a limited budget. You have a certain uh, location you're using, and you got You can have all the creativity you want within the budget and the space. Go, and that's kind of what you feel like with this director. I'd agree with that. Um, let's go with hidden gem, uh, Bill. Hidden gem in terms of a character whatever you want. Yeah, really. character really could be anything. Uh, you could say, well, the director did this movie I also really like or okay. just whatever I, whatever you think is an unsung. The, the other the other small but I thought fairly effective role was by Vincent Roll as Vincent Ball as Kitchener's mouthpiece. Mm-hmm. I thought you know he might his his scene might have been 3-4 minutes on the stand. But I I thought he was pretty good in that role. Oh, and and I actually completely agree. He's my hidden gem as well as the quintessential slippery British officer, <laughs> like that. Like he just he he glistens. Like and every time you see him, he's just very that pale. Like, yes, I know exactly what you mean. You know, like, just <laughs> he's got that slime factor to him. And even though you could see on his face that he's not happy that he's going to be the one lying under oath. Right about this thing he's still game 
So I, you know, I kind of view him as the uh, the snotty equivalent of Hancock on the other side, where Hancock's probably game to do whatever needs to be done. Well, this is the the British hierarchy uh, colonel who says, "Nah, yeah, I, I get it. We got, you know, someone's got to get dirty. It's going to be me." There is. Do something. you not get the Do you not get the impression that he's just as happy to give this fraudulent testimony and then go have a martini? Like that, that's just. Oh the, yeah, hundred percent. Mm-hmm. There is something about the way that he curls he seems like his a gen guy, upper though. lip around his teeth, right? Like the, he has this uh, th- this way of uh, when he comes through with his uh, aristocratic style language and has to answer. There's a way that his uh, his upper lip curls, and it is it's 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 got a, it's a talent clearly, but it it really fits that character. Yeah. Uh, Dustin, who is your hidden gem? Uh, you know, speaking of that character, he's he's got in, incredibly bright emerald eyes, uh, crazy color yeah. on his eyes. But uh, my hidden gem is <laughs> the German women who are sitting with the German ambassador at dinner when they have the boar singer come in uh, at that like dinner party. Um, okay, I, I watched this with my friend Tucker, and we're sitting there, and he goes just out loud, "Boy, those are some plain ladies." <laughs> <And I'm, laughs> <laughs> and I laughed so hard. I nearly broke like the support on my couch. Those ladies are plain. They ain't even vanilla, man. They are original flavor ice cream. They are ice flavored ice cream. Those are some plain is, ladies. Is, and I, is this where the phrase beggars can't be choosers comes in? <laughs> it was so great, man. Beige on beige and beige. It, it, it made me laugh. So I had to the, give him the, some The credit. other character I did want to bring up that nobody has is Rob Steele. Who, uh, okay. who played the uh, man who formerly was in the patrol but is no longer due to reasons that were brought out during the trial. Yeah, he kind of went from being the star prosecution witness to almost to their detriment. Mm-hmm. And I thought it, he probably portrayed a pretty... I mean, you can literally see the sweat coming off his forehead. Sweat dripping off. <laughs> yeah. Dripping off as he's being caught. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I'm not lying. (laughs) Baloney. Uh, All right. Well, I know a lot of us never want to do it, but this is the time to do a recast. So, Dustin, who are you recasting in Breaker Moran? I'm actually not going period specific with 1980 and picking someone I want in there. Instead, I do something that Russell sometimes does, which is a full, like, main cast recast. And I'm only doing it because you have people that are near doppelgangers to these actors nowadays. Um, So I would go uh, for uh, Morant. That would be Daniel Craig. Hancock. That would be Jude Law. Uh, For uh, Witten, that would be Orlando Bloom. And then for our uh, Major Thomas, that's Bruce Willis. Like it, th- these guys, if you look back at it, and by the way, when we're done recording, I'm putting the movie back on. I want to watch it again. Um, but you look at these guys; they look just they look just like it. And what you know, three of the four of them are British. So it's it it's yep. it, that that's kind of my fun take on this recast this time. All right, who are you recasting? Okay, well, I I kind of went with Dustin here, and I went with a couple of them. Except I tried to find people that of that era I could slide in. Yes. So, if I'm going to recast Breaker Morant, uh, Edward Woodward, I'm going to go with his opposite at Wicker Man. I'm going to go with Christopher Lee. Oh, yeah. I'm going to put him in that role. Because Christopher Lee wasn't just horror. He did a few other roles that, you know, stretched him a little bit more. If I'm going to change 
uh, Brian Brown, Brown's character. I'm going to go with a 1970s version of Tommy Lee Jones. Mm. I think he's okay. kind of got that tenacity, that, you know, that little slightly off kilter. Like if you've seen Rolling Thunder, his character in Rolling Thunder towards the end is very much Brian Brown. If I'm going to change uh, Jack uh, Thompson as the lawyer, I'm going to go with Donald Sutherland. I think uh, he is, I, I think, my all-time favorite actor. He's so diversified, and he can deliver a role. Now, if I'm going to recast the judge, I'm going to bring in Max von Sydow. Oh, I love that. I think he would be great in there. I I, I think uh, <laughs> Max von Sydow is, uh, it, that's where, who says no? Right, it says no to having him in that mm-hmm. role. I mean, I mean, you go from Max Van Sydow doing the classic roles to having him in Strange Brew. Like that just shows his, you know, his stretch of movie roles. It was a good list. You know, I only did a, a a single on this one. I just felt like this movie needed Peter O'Toole. Oh, so I I I plugged him in for Lord Kitchener. I just could see him being that. Hmm. Well, you know what to do. Fine man like you, yourself can figure it out. I'll send you instead. Just, I, like it, I just, this is the kind of movie that needs Peter O'Toole in it. Uh, yeah, the, the other one, I, the other one I considered in this vintage is instead of Tommy Lee Jones throwing in a 1979's Jack Nicholson, like one flew over the cuckoo's nest, Jack Nicholson. It's funny you bring that up because I watched The Shining right around the time I was prepping for this movie. And there was a point in time where I had had to pause this film and pick it back up later. And I was in maybe 30 minutes into the second sitting of it. And I was like, I thought Jack Nicholson was in this. (laughs) And it was only because I had been watching The Shining recently that I had, I had basically had in my mind plugged him into the film, and I was like, "Who was he?" And I was like, "No, you just watched The Shining, idiot." <laughs> but I mean, so. that, that kind of, you know, Jack Torrance, uh, Cuckoo's Nest, that slightly off kilter. That again, the buddy you'd love to go to the bar with, but you don't know how the night's going to end. That's Jack right. Nicholson. All right. Well, um, so let's talk about best shot here. Uh, we'll start with you, Bill. Uh, the one that will stick in my mind is the finality shot where they get killed sitting on the chair. Uh, overly dramatic, yes. Historically accurate, no. no. <laughs> but will it stick in your head? Yes. Damn right it will. Oh, yeah. And that's the role. I'm, that's the one I'm going with. Uh, I had something uh, sort of similar. I really appreciated the shot looking off into the sunrise. Oh, right after right. Yeah, uh, that that was, uh, you know, it's weird to say something that was actually after the culmination of the film. But man, I just thought that, you know, it, another day's coming. This happened. It, it left me with a weird feeling. And I just thought that was that was oddly impactful for for a closing scene. No, um, closing picture. I was going to say, Brian and Dustin, did you think the overlay of Morant's poem at the end did that add a layer of cheese or did that add a layer of authenticity let me cut in here and say i actually have something on that a little later oh okay okay. we will will keep that in untouchable (laughs) um i uh my best my best shot is right around that same time as you guys which is it's actually the walk to the chairs when these two men 
who know that they are, you know, moments away from their end. It's it's only natural. They they reach out and they hold each other's hands as they walk towards it. Like that's hey, this is the last touch we're going to have. And and the other thing I like about that scene or dislike, depending upon your point of view, is how bloody calm they were. Yes. You didn't see them squirming for their lives. You didn't see them say hello to my wife for me. You didn't hear them, see them sweat or cry. It's guys, make sure your shot is straight. You know, like, yeah, don't, don't cock it up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, that's, and that's because the, the, the crying or the, the emotional outburst that happened from Witten and then, uh, the, uh, adding on top of that is, um, Hancock denies the blindfold. And my my friend who watched it with me was like, oh, that's cool. He's like, no, I just, I need to see this. Uh, that was pretty neat. And, and I'll, I'll toss one other thing on top of all that because, you know, you talk about going to your death and, you know, knowing it and everything. Well, this, this is another man that had your back. There are worse ways to go out than with someone you called friend that you had drinks with, that you fought alongside. I mean, it's it's kind of something close akin to, you know, dying in battle with the same guy. So this is something that, that you'd kind of factored into what is likely to happen to you anyway. So it's not so bad. And, and the other aspect of that is it's going to be a clean shot that's done within 30 seconds. You're right. not You're not suffering. Yeah. So yep. it's like, get on, get on with business. I mean, that, the whole scene about them watching them make the, um, uh, oh, the boxes, the boxes. The, yeah. Oh, oh, they're a little <laughs> they too short. At least me- <laughs> yeah. I love that. Uh, um, they could, they could have had the sense to measure us. Well, they probably never had anybody complain. <laughs> and then I think you hear, uh, Woodward kind of like, what, what business, what difference does it make anyways? We're dead. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know so yeah. yeah. All right. Let me, let me take some time to find a new best quote because could have had the decency to measure us first was mine. <laughs> oh, I thought it was going to be the poem. I thought that's why it was untouchable. <laughs> I know it's, it's something else different there. So now we'll move on to best scene, Bill. Best scene. I don't know. You know what? Honestly, no one scene didn't stand out other than the initial siege. Okay. The initial siege, I thought it, it literally threw you right into it. If you knew nothing about the battles, if you knew nothing about the Boer War, this threw you right into the war right away. And then when you get the later explanation that these were kind of rogue, you know, what was left of the, uh, the, the Boers and it, it made more sense to me. Okay. Um, I went with uh, Thompson just eviscerating the witness. Uh, I, I just, the best part of a quintessential courtroom scene is just a, a key witness getting torn apart. And uh, I don't know. I really enjoyed that part. Uh, Dustin, how about your scene, man? Uh, it's hard not to do the final scene. Um, <clears throat> but I had mentioned twice the importance of Hancock sort of taking the subtle direction that uh, essentially anything could happen for that minister on his way to whatever city he says uh, like hey it's dangerous road anything can happen out there oh yeah he talked to the he talked to the prisoners uh, that that understanding between our two characters and between our two actors uh, we know that they're tying up a loose end and then you do get the the, the snipe of that 
minister who, whether he's a spy or not, like you just, it do, doesn't actually matter that they did it. Uh, but I think that scene kind of showed you that if you were leaning that these two were at all in the morally right or that they were to be rooted for, that you could say, ah, yeah, they, they knew what they were doing. So that's my best scene. Hey, you well, the other question is, did either of you two feel sorry for the minister? Or is that, you know, considering his action, that's what's going to happen? I I think that I fully accepted that he was a spy in my head based on their... Uh, yeah, they, they talked about it. Conversation about it. Yeah, well, it was the thing where he's like, look, I don't want you to talk to those prisoners. You talk to the prisoners. He's a spy. Like, I, I understand that leap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and there was also a bit like they didn't, they didn't like each other anyway. Um, I, I don't know. I, I didn't. I did not feel sorry for him. All right, Dustin. How about you give me your uh, best wardrobe and makeup moment? Uh, I, I thought the wardrobe was incredible for the entire movie, actually. Uh, but I will say that there's a moment, just kind of a comedic moment for me, where there is someone using the latrine. Uh, and there, there's, somebody else is waiting for him to finish, and he's got his combat cover like still on. <laughs> I just, I thought that was kind of funny. All right, uh, wardrobe and makeup, Bill. I will agree with uh, Dustin in terms of I thought the attention to detail in not just the wardrobe, but the facilities, uh, the housing, the accents. I thought whoever did their historical research for this was bang on. Uh, you almost gotcha. felt like you were in 1900 Pretoria. So gotcha. I would say as a whole, like what impressed me the most, honestly, were their military uniforms themselves, particularly when the lawyers were sitting around talking. I mean, people's lives are on the line and he's wearing the same thing that he'd be wearing if he were having dinner. Like, mm-hmm. It, it, it gave you that sense, that aura of being there, and the military really is a job, regardless of what task you're assigned. Sure. I, uh, I Sometimes I think I was, I was born in the wrong century for, for clothing. I absolutely love the North Africa, South Africa, French Foreign Legion, British like the the european style of clothing at the time with the suspenders with the you know i there's just a swagger to it that i've always really appreciated and i the hats oh the hats are great in this fantastic um you know it's that you know almost like a gallipoli feel to it too where you just got that that look so which is uh, which is coincidentally the next film you're doing right gallipoli (laughs) (laughs) right um so yeah i just uh yeah super dug it uh i thought they did a great job as well and and moreover i just appreciate that that style of military dress anyway all right we are now up to change one thing dustin there's very little i would change about this movie um and now we get to what was brought up before i like the voiceover for the poetry at the end Though I do understand that it maybe it leads into cheesiness or however you were going to kind of put it in that sense. So I just called it a, a layer of cheese. So what I think with that cheese layer in our seven layer dip of this movie, uh, what I'd like instead is actually to lean into the cheese. And instead of it being uh, Woodford reading his own poetry as the uh, as we close the movie, instead it's Witten 
reading this out loud at some kind of war memorial. Like it's it starts as Woodford's uh, uh, voice, maybe then it transitions to uh, Witten's voice, and we reveal that he's reading it at some kind of dedication to the Carboneers or the people of that war, like the forgotten heroes, and in this case, the scapegoats. I think that would have bumped it into another layer of cheese, but I would have liked to see that and use that to replace the... Well, in the end, you know, Harry graduated and went to college. And in the end, you know, Sally settled down and now she's a librarian. That very 80s classic thing. Here's what happened at the end. Instead of that, you have it where Witten is revealed to have gotten out after three years and he's reading this poetry at some type of memorial. I thought that could have really, really pushed this movie further. Awesome. Bill, what what do you have? I have a a two-way answer. One, as a historian or a lover of history and another as an uh, aesthetic filmmaking point of view from a filmmaking point of view, I would have tried to cut maybe 10 minutes, uh, a little bit from maybe some of the flashbacks and make it a tighter 90, 95 minute film. My second point from a historical point of view is I just would like to have seen it more historically accurate. Uh, I know that the drama scene it towards the end with them sitting in the chair was aesthetically and story-wise more dramatic but that's not how it really played out. Uh, there's nothing wrong with having a public execution or, you know, or whatever. However it is, it worked for Sean Penn. Why couldn't it have worked here? So sure. Uh, that's my other little gripe on it. Gotcha. Um, I do not know what all engagements would have been um, historically accurate for this film, but I could have gone with a little exposition in the beginning, maybe if there was something a little bit more major, I know this is more of a guerrilla war, but some sort of engagement to introduce me to what the Boer war was, uh, with a little bit greater understanding, get you into the thick of it a little bit more, maybe to show some of the, uh, the, the tactics that led to the orders that were given yes, that would be uh, nice. a little bit more. And, and, uh, you know, I, I agree that it could have been 10 minutes shorter with some of that, but I would have taken that 10 minutes for this exposition. So I understood this part in history better. Yeah. That'd be nice. I, I completely get it because as I said before, very few people these days, really have an understanding of what the war was. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's not one of these, let's give a 10 minute overview of the war, you know, using right. real footage, but maybe a little blip of in 1899, this happened and that law, sure. this and that. So it could have been a 30 second little blip, at least giving you a bit of exactly. a preface. Yeah. Oceans are now right. battlefields. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. <laughs> The last thing I had in my notes is, would you consider Morant a hero, an anti-hero, or an enemy? All right, it's a good question, I'm thinking. Out of those, out of those options, I'm going to call him an anti-hero. Um, but I would almost go with a, a third option where I would call him a pragmatist hero where you know although there may have been some revenge underlying his actions if he had not been as close to the captain as he was and still did everything he did 
without them using his closeness to the captain, then it, it literally would have been a military decision to hunt down and kill the enemy who had hit them first. It's a, it's a counteroffensive, if you will. Or, or so if you take, I was going to say, or is he just Charles Bronson with a military uniform? Well, but see, he's never doing any of this, like, kick down the door. Like, he's doing it with everyone else. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't feel like they made any point outside of him and Hancock, you know, getting out of their cell and being tossed a gun. I never got a, a, a vibe in this movie that he is this, I am a more superb soldier than all the rest of these guys. He just is doing his duty with that sort of lethal efficiency that comes with veterancy. And so I I never felt like they were putting him above anyone else, except that he is able to remain sound and, you know, coldly focused on being what a soldier has to be. Now that you've said that, I, I can't answer with any of your options. He's just an officer. He's not a hero. He's not an antihero. He's just and a, he's not a political he's officer. A like he's he's he's, he's a lieutenant. A guy he's the, did his thing, and did he do it a little brutally one time? Yeah, and or even a couple times. It. War is brutal. Yeah, like, like he he's an example. He he, I, he like there's no statue if there is. Maybe I understand, but like he was just an officer, like that intelligence yeah. guy that he was working with. That's like yeah, you know my my job's kind of boring. It's like he's like corporate officer. Like, right. like when Breaker Man, Morant's more of like renegade officer, but even still. He's just doing what he thinks is uh, re- realistic to do in that role at that time in that situation. And that's it, and it's, that it's the difference can, between. Uh, I think everyone can kind of uh, <clears throat> uh, can get can get with that, can um, identify with like, yeah, he's I could see myself doing that or ooh, he didn't do the right. Like it's it's easily for any audience member to identify uh, whether they served or not. He, he's a soldier's lieutenant. You know, he's not an armchair officer. He is a in the field. He is a combat officer. Yeah. I mean, I think he, right. I, I was going to say, I think he did what most soldiers would have done. Or does he have a little bit of dirty hairy in him? He's got a little bit of dirty hairy in him. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't think he's afraid to tap into that. But again, I when you look at war, I think you got to be you know, dirty, hairy, but not, I I don't mean it in the star of the show frame of reference. Just, you have to be capable of extreme violence at any given time. Uh, Listeners of the show and and future guests of the show, uh, take notes because Bill asking us these questions and having us ponder in real time. I'm loving this. Oh, oh, you've just gotten to the tip of the iceberg there, buddy. Well, yeah, but our shows don't go six hours, Bill. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That's true. (laughs) Uh, we're going to take our last swing here at a superlative with best quote. Bill, what is your favorite quote in Breaker oh, Morant? The, my favorite quote, the one that made me literally laugh. There once was a lad from Australia who painted his ass like a dahlia. The color was fine and likewise the design, but the aroma, woo, that was a failure. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> That's good. I don't care how many times you see that film and you want that humor. There is your humor. Right. Right. Dustin, favorite quote. It was the, the could have had the, me- the decency to measure us first, but there was another one. And I generally don't go biblical with it, but uh, he asks what he wants on his tombstone. I actually do want an epitaph. Oh, what is the it? The epitaph. Yeah. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. 
That's pr- yeah, pr- uh, pretty that was, poignant that was heavy. in this movie. Yeah, yeah, pretty heavy. I liked it. Uh, my quote was also a Hancock special, and it's, well, they say a sly off a coat, cut loaves never missed. Never missed, yeah. Good. <laughs> Talking about sleeping with a married woman. <laughs> I, I, like, I, I, I teared up a little bit cry, uh, laughing at that one. But I was just like, what? I never, I had never heard that before. I mean, this, never. Is one of the, this is one of those films that, yeah, it's dark, it's grim, it's whatever. But it's got lots of humor in it. If you're that was hysterical. A, they say a slice off a cut loaf is never missed. <laughs> and, and gosh, let's just let's just say she was no shrieking uh, violet. Right. She, right. she was very very proactive uh, in that engagement. Right. Oh God, it was great. Uh, Bill, uh, tell us a little bit about where else we can hear you. Well, you can find me if you like. Well, first, before I get into that, thank you very much, Dustin and Brian. This was an absolute blast. And the fact that I can talk about films that I don't normally get the chance to spread my wings with, I love it. If anybody is engaged or has actually just put up with listening to me talk, you can find me on Land of the Creeps, which is at landofthecreeps.blogspot.com and all your podcatchers, Apple, Spotify, etc. And we do a deep dive into horror films across the board from silent films till last week. And we have very general topics. We have audience engagement, and we're pretty lighthearted. So Land of the Creeps, uh, Phantom Galaxy with my friend Nathan Bartlebaugh is out there. If you type it in the Google search, you'll find it. And I am also a contributing member of horror movie podcast with a, a cast of characters. I specifically do reviews on films found on Tubi. Oh, cool. Oh, right on. So everybody out there, engage with us if you wish. If you want to contact me, I'm easy to find. It's an absolute blast, and I hope your listeners are not turned off too much by my ramblings. Not at all. This has been a blast. Let's give this a rating, zero to five star, using half star increments if you wish. Dustin, what are you rating? Breaker Morant. Uh, I was surprised with my expectation of what this movie was going to be. I, I relearned that, oh, courtroom drama and the direction that is required to make what you're visually seeing uh, and the the pace of it feel like it's not just the weight stacked against you, but it's kind of a slog for everyone and is justice really happening and all of this. And then our flashbacks to an, a, a war that I don't know anything about and is the character a hero or anti-hero, all this stuff. I'm surprised to say that this is a, a breakaway five stars for me. And uh, I, I'm going to watch it again. And it's going to be one of those to where I don't want to explain a single thing about this movie for when I recommend it, because it's going to get recommended Hey, pick up this movie. Watch Breaker Morant. And what's it about? Just just watch it. It's five stars for me, guys. Right on. All right, Bill. Zero to five stars. Zero to five stars. I give it 4.5. I, I, and, and it only comes down to I am very difficult to get a perfect score from. I tend to be – I'm, I'm an elementary school teacher, and it, I'm a, a, a tough but fair marker. So I think four and a half – is excellent, but I can easily twist my arm, you know, give me the odd substance and I can make it a five. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. Uh, I, I'm, I'm much like you, Bill. I, I'm very selective in my five star drops. I gave this a four and I'm also the obstinate one that refuses to use half star increments on the podcast. Uh, just because, uh, 
it, it just seemed indecisive in my head. So I gave this a four. Uh, I, this is easily rewatchable. This is a really entertaining movie. And, and best of all, I love being taken off guard by a film I've never seen that I really enjoy. So thank you for suggesting it. Um, absolutely had a blast watching it. Um, Dustin, are you ready to pick a movie for next time? You got it. And this upcoming week, we are going back to 1999, no matter which one you choose. So we're going to start with option number one, Virgin Suicides. A group of male friends becomes obsessed with five mysterious sisters who are sheltered by their strict religious parents in suburban Detroit in the mid-70s. Option number two, Girl Interrupted, a film based on writer Susanna Kaysen's account of her 18-month stay at a mental hospital in the late 1960s. Or, from 1999, Election, a high school teacher meets his match in an overachieving student politician. What's it going to be? I think I've got to go with the one I haven't seen yet, and that's going to be Election, 1999. Broderick, Witherspoon, you paid for the whole seat, but you'll only need the edge of it. (laughs) And I I just have to say, boys, I haven't seen that one, so I look forward to listening to it. Excellent. Right on, right on. Don't forget to pause right where we tell you to so you can watch it and give us feedback (laughs) on how that experience works for you. You know what? I'll just Uh, go ahead and watch it and to heck with it and then just tell me what it's coming out to. Oh, no. That's not what's intended, Bill. (laughs) (laughs) You've got to pause it just right. Okay. My my life and my whole evening will stop just because. Right right, right before the advertisement, Bill. Oh, no, yeah, Uh, for sure. We'll get get your sponsor full, full, full. All right. Well, thank you, all the lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We would like to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's mostly audio only. Give us a like on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. Producing and providing for this podcast is fun, but not free. We invite you to support the show at our patreon page that's www.patreon.com slash retro movie roundtable forward slash any contribution is much appreciated and will go toward making the show better for you the listeners as always thank you for listening be good to each other and watch more movies dustin i never joke about my work 007